You're about to hear a preview of Partially Examined Life supporter exclusive content. To learn how to get the whole thing, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. This is the Partially Examined Life, still episode 299, part three, now down to three of us since Seth had to go, but we're still on the same day. One of the things that Jonathan had brought up was this, that Shakespeare, I guess, as he does in many of his plays, is that he makes comments on the arts itself, right? On poetry. And so this whole beginning of the play, you got the poet and the painter, and they're sort of comparing, and the poet, we could read through some of that. And when Timon evaluates the poet and the painting, when the poet and the painter come back at the end, and he has words to say about them there, and they have some words to say about how, because they've just heard that he has some money. They're not going to actually like write anything for him until that's confirmed. (laughs) They're just going to promise. So they come in with a more cynical take. And he is one of the interpretations is that he pretends to like what they've done. But at the beginning, he's, he seems to actually like what they've done and say some things about how I think we quoted in part two, that the drawing has captured the nature of the man or something like that. So, yeah. So yes, Shakespeare's plays are often also reflections on art and what it means to be an artist. And they're often very explicitly so like in the tempest it's not a hidden thing and it's it's really that's one of the things that makes shakespeare so interesting is this all this thinking that's going on in the plays and the thinking in particular about what am i doing as a playwright it's very cool so in this case we get this set up he's evoking the traditional battle between the philosophers and the poets and the platonic idea that art is lying it's you know these deficient copies of reality and the kind of critique we saw in the Republic. And then the counterpoint to that is that you can get truth through lying. And I think that starts with Aristotle's kind of response in the poetics to Plato and the idea that catharsis and our art. So our identifications with people on stage, for instance, can be more complicated. We're not just taking in falsity and flattery and bad emotions and things like that. And then, of course, in Nietzsche as well, right? There's an argument. The idea is that we have a goodwill towards appearance. We have a goodwill towards a lying because that is the way out. The aesthetic is the way out. And that's one of the counterpoints, right, to the falsity of the social, actually, which is like we've already talked about one, which is love relationships, familial relationships, intimate relationships. But the other way out of the ubiquity of lying that goes on socially could be through the aesthetic. But the way the play begins, it's flirting with the idea that art itself is just flattery, right? You're just flattering a benefactor for money or you're flattering your audience. And this kind of thing came up in Gorgias. And then, you know, the other idea is that in the battle between art and nature, art actually wins. Art is more real than nature, the poet suggests, right? And then later on, well, actually, no, it's early on here. Because men are corrupt, right? When you represent human beings, human beings are corrupt and dishonorable. So when you represent them, you improve on them. You do a better job than nature. And in a way, that's more real than nature. Anyway, that's the way I would set up this early beginning conversation here. So when the jeweler is introduced on the first page here, he's like, I've got a jewel here. Is it for Timon? Oh, yeah, if he'll, if he'll pay me what it's worth, if he will touch the estimate. But for that, and the poet interrupts with a quote, when we for recompense have praised the vile, it stains the glory in that happy verse which aptly sings the good. 
And then the merchant answers, tis a good form. Is he talking still about the jewel or is he talking about what the poet just said? I'm not sure why the poet says that at that point. Is it because this jewel needs to be talked up for time and to want to buy it? Clearly something related to the point in Gorgias or, you know, once art is commoditized or once flattery based on remuneration occurs, if it involves art, that sort of stains the name of art. Doing art for commercial purposes stains art. But I'm very confused about the presentation of that here. I felt like the poet was making a sort of side comment while the merchant and the jeweler were interacting. I have directions in my copy that maybe you guys don't, but if you've looked at any recordings, you know, you can see how there's split off groups actually. So the poet apparently is making an aside to the painter mm-hmm. about the jeweler. He's criticizing the jeweler, right? The jeweler yep. says, I'm doing this for money. And the poet is saying, that stains the glory of it. If you're just doing it for money, you should just be motivated by praising the good, right? That we come back to the merchant and the merchant is looking at the jewel and says, tis a good form. There's two conversations going on. They may both groups are at the doorstep of Timon, but the poet and the painter are having their own conversations distinct from the jeweler and the merchant. Yeah. So then the painter as says to the poet, you are wrapped, sir, in some work, some dedication to the great Lord. And the poet says, a thing slipped idly from me. Our posy is as a gum, which oozes from whence tis nourished. So is it as a gum? It's really hard to read the footnotes. They're just shoved together in very small print. He's saying that he is not inspired by external circumstances, right? So we're pivoting off the idea that externalities are important to art. One externality is compensation from someone. You could think of another externality as praise from an audience. Or you could think of another externality as just, hey, I'm waiting to be inspired by something outside of me. And in this case, he's saying, I'm self-inspiring because my poetry comes from within. Naturally. You know, unlike a fire where you have to strike a flint, it comes from a, oh, its see. own nature. So we have to strike a flint to get the fire. Our gentle flame provokes itself. Mine just like is self-generating. And then he gives you this really cool metaphor of a current. So the current flies each bound it chases. So in other words, it's not that he's just bouncing off of something. He chases the thing first and then bounces off of it. So it's of his own momentum and action mm-hmm. that it comes. So yep. it's not that you can't prime the pump, let's say inspirationally, but it's all coming from within. So the poet has this very grandiose idea of what he's doing as an artist. And then he'll, I think he flatters the painter and says, you're painting Tudor's nature. The thing you quoted, ours says, each bound it chafes. And chafes is defined in the footnote as moves against, seethes at, erodes. It overtakes all bounds rather than chasing. I don't know what chasing a bound would. So I think chases is better because it fits with the fire analogy. It's a continuation of that. So basically, the boundary is the bank, right? So the current flees and flies is really just means flees. So the current runs away from the embankment, but it's chasing it at the same time, right? And that's just the image of the river moving, hitting the embankment, bouncing off it and continuing on its way. But the paradoxical idea is that it's chasing what it's running away from. And what he's saying is, I'm not simply running away from some, you know, like the fire from the flint. I'm not simply a 
effect of some cause outside of me, I produce the cause as well. I don't just bounce off the embankment. I run towards it first. Regardless of whether you like that interpretation, that's the kind of general, the gist of this is that he is self-inspiring. He does, doesn't come from the outside. Yes, I mean, this raises a meta issue, which I want us to sort of deal with in the second half of here of how to understand, how to be a good Shakespeare spectator is arguing about whether it should be chafes or chases. Is that helpful? Let's keep going here. You were, you're getting to where in the next couple lines, the painter shows his piece and the poet is how this grace speaks his own standing. What a mental power the, this eye shoots forth. How big imagination moves in this lip to the dumbness of the gesture one might interpret. It is a pretty mocking of the life, says the painter. Is it good? And then the poet says, yes, it tutors nature. Artificial strife lives in these touches livelier than life. Yeah. So this idea of mocking, you know, is it's a double entendre and it's something that recurs in poetry like Keats uses this idea as well. So this double meaning between mocking is just copying, imitating, but Mocking can also mean caricaturing or distorting or making fun of, right? And the underlying question is whether the imitation, whether mimesis representation is getting at something truer or whether it's just falsifying. And the poet is going to say, well, he's going to answer that implicit question to say, actually, it's not about art accurately representing nature. Art tutors nature. There's something truer in art there's something livelier than life in it so again it's you know you get these three different alternatives one is that art and representation falsify one is that you could have accurate representations or in some way art could be true to nature or hey it's nature that needs to be true to art (laughs) art comes first art is truer well it's a very grandiose idea It is, but I take it to be, it is art as the proper interpretation of nature. Not that nature sits at the foot of art and takes its lessons from art, but in terms of representing the world or the universe as it is, that art is getting at that truth more than any sort of barefaced representation of nature. That there's a secret Mm -hmm. that's to be found. And that's one of the things is that the poet and the painter are aligned in this respect, patting each other on the back about how art is providing the insight into the natural world that is not plain on its face. See, I think by saying art tutors nature and is truer than nature, livelier than nature or life, improves on it, all these different comments about it. To me, it's more than just being true to nature. Um, well, it's, it's true in the Platonic Copernican sense. Well, in the Platonic no, I wasn't sense. Reversal, so. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't saying it's, that it's true to, well. So art tutors nature. Can't you just say that in a, if you're a Platonist, then you think that the art is capturing not what the shabby stuff that actually shows up in nature, but the true teleology, the nature within the nature, what the nature is shooting for. That is the truth of nature. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.